Hey, my name is Jason. I'm the producer of It Starts With Attraction. I wanted to let you know that we have a brand new website solely dedicated to working on your pies. Introducing ItStartsWithAttraction.com. You can listen to every episode, learn about the pies, and sign up for our weekly newsletter. Go to ItStartsWithAttraction.com. It starts with attraction, one word. It starts with attraction.com to get signed up today. This week on It Starts With Attraction. I have never, ever, ever seen a couple recover from a betrayal, a significant betrayal, when the harmed partner didn't say, I know I have a part of this as well. There's a process to falling in love, and it starts with attraction. Join Kimberly Beam Holmes and her special guests as they discuss how to become the most attractive you can be, physically, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually, or as we refer to it, working on your pies. We'll teach you how to have better relationships and become more attractive to others, and maybe more importantly, to yourself. It starts with attraction, and it starts now. I'm excited today. I have Zach Brittle on the It Starts With Attraction podcast, and he is a couples therapist out in Seattle. He's been been doing counseling and coaching couples for over a dozen years. He has a couple of books, The Relationship Alphabet, The Marriage Therapy Journal, and he's also been featured in Real Simple Men's Health in the Washington Post. He has been happily married to his wife, Rebecca, for 23 out of 24 years. They have two adulting daughters, a minivan, and most of the silverware that they got as wedding gifts. I love it. So, Zach, thank you for being on the show. Welcome. Of course. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And tell me about the being happily married 23 (laughs) out of 24 years. I tell you what, that that one sentence has gotten me more business than any marketing I've ever done in any way of, at any time. Um, uh, you know, here's the thing. Nobody's ever accused me of being inauthentic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think I could do my job as a couples therapist or as a thinker about relationships without acknowledging that it's really, really hard. In fact, I think since I wrote that, I think the bio you read, I think that we've changed it. I think we're at like 23 out of 25 years. I think we Mm -hmm. added another year that was really problematic, but number eight was really, really hard for us. That's generally the one that I'm first Mm -hmm. referencing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think a couple of years ago, we had another patch that we would call just really, really terrible. And um, part of why I love being able to own that is because year nine was fantastic for us. Um, and right now we're in a little bit of a renaissance where we feel very, very close and very, very, uh, much like we mm-hmm. have kind of a renewed sense of what it means for us to be in this game together. And so mm-hmm. I'm really proud of the years that were hard for us. And, um, it's a little bit of comedy and it's a little bit of marketing, but it's actually just part of our identity, which is mm-hmm. we, I guess maybe another way I would say this, and it's, it's actually something that we model a lot for our kids is we just really, really believe in repair. Yeah. Like, um, there's this idea, like, should you argue in front of your kids? And I'm pro arguing in front of your kids, as long as you are repairing in front of your kids. Mm -hmm. Um, that for me is, is the, is the actual crux of the issue is do they get to see how broken things can be mended? And so, 
that's the story of that sentence in the in in our bio in my bio. I love it. I love it because it's raw, it's authentic, and I think it's hope giving to so many people. Right? Even a I mean, I think so. Doesn't have it all together, or twenty five out of twenty five perfect years of marriage. Yeah. No. 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 No chance. In fact, I wouldn't even trust those people. Yeah. Um, right. So. But I am also, I mean, it's weird as therapy is a weird thing, right? Because there's this sort of presumption of, uh, cognitive dissonance or, or like, uh, not, not being known or not being transparent. And I write so much and I, as you know, I have my own podcast that mm-hmm. is three and a half years old. So people come to me a lot because they already know me or they know me. They don't really know me, but they at least know that, that I, this persona that I put out there and that persona is full of stories about my life and stories about my practice and stories about my struggles in my own relationship. And I think it just makes, I I, I mean, it works for some people. (laughs) It doesn't work for other people. I think it makes me feel more confident about my ability to do my job, but that's, Mm -hmm. that's kind of the nature of the gig. What led you to want to be a couples therapist? Um, Well, I, I went to school to college to become a teacher um, because I love uh, I went to college to become an English teacher because I love, uh, you know, stories and myth and metaphor. I, uh, I love all of that. And so I became an English teacher and quickly found out that I didn't know, have enough like interpersonal skills to know what I was doing. So I went back to graduate school to become a therapist or uh, to study therapy, to study counseling. I, um, I'm, I was really good at it. I did great in graduate school. I was a graduate assistant, but I quickly found out that I did not enjoy individual therapy at all. I hated, mm. I hated meeting with individuals. I didn't hate the wrong word, but I don't, I'm an introvert. And so the, the idea of sitting down with people for an hour at a time, and then maybe doing that multiple times a day was really taxing to me. Yeah. And then one day, um, uh, when I was in my graduate student years, one of my students brought his partner in. And my whole body just responded. My whole body just said, oh, this I can do. I can mm. do this energy. I can do this, this. Um, and it took me a while to lean into that as an identity. I live in Seattle, which is where the Gottman Institute is. Mm-hmm. And so I had easy access to really the world's kind of leading research modality. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was volunteering down there a lot and learning a lot, getting a lot of stuff. And you know, one day I finally just said, I think I could, I think I could pull this off as a job and turns out I can. And so I, I do, this is, I love it. I, I was just thinking the other day about how I'm just really grateful that I love my job um, or that I feel like my job isn't a costume that I put on. Mm-hmm. I don't put on like, my, I literally don't put on a uniform, like a business suit or a, you know, a restaurant job or something. I've just, I just show up as me and I do me based on what I know and what my body enjoys and I'm never bored. So that's kind of the, I mean, that's kind of how I, I guess that's kind of how I stumbled onto it. It's, it was a happy accident, I guess, because I always thought I was going to go back and be a teacher, just one who was better, better at being, um, you know, with people. Um, the other thing I will add that I think is just relevant to what we're talking about is the combination for me of being a person who loves stories and patterns and, and themes and also gaining expertise in the Gottman method, which is really research-based and it's mm-hmm. all math and numbers. Mm-hmm. I think that combination is really powerful. Like mm-hmm. uh, I don't just go in and go, here's what the research says. And yeah. I also don't go in and kind of 
just try to speculate. I have this unique combination and, and agility to be able to talk about patterns and themes and and different ways that people's individual stories uh, connect to the broader body of research. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's also fun for me. So I am currently reading the book, The Science of Trust. Have you read it? Um, no. Okay. It's by Gottman. Okay. And I'm not even halfway done. Like I, <laughs> I probably yeah. shouldn't even be asking you questions about it, but he's explaining the, how he got kind of this trust metric. And I don't know yep. if, if in your training that you've done at Gottman Institute, you've learned about the trust metric, but basically at its core, he's, he's uncovering what leads people to not trust, what leads them to trust again. Mm-hmm. And this thing, all of this really is fascinating me because right now he's talking about game theory mm-hmm. and about how people will choose if they feel like they're not going to win, then yeah. they're going to choose kind of just what's best for them. But if they yeah. feel like they could win, they'll choose what's best for everyone. That's way oversimplification. Yeah. Are you familiar with this? Yeah, I can talk, I can talk about that quite a bit. Um, the thing about John's books, John's brilliant. He's done so much. I, I, the, the Science of Trust is a book I have not read. I've read a handful of them. Mm-hmm. It won't surprise you that a lot of them are very, very similar. Yeah. And it just kind of is the angle that he's coming at. I think the yeah. best of his books is uh, the one called um, What uh, What Makes Love Work. What, what? It's a red one. I know what you're talking um, about. I can't picture the name of I picture it. I can't think of the name of it. It's A lot of people think it's his, his affairs book, but it's not. It's his mm-hmm. betrayal book. Mm-hmm. And basically, he he John doesn't do a lot of everything with him is precision mm-hmm. in terms of like being able to defend it. It's one of the only sentences in all of his literature that I've ever seen him um, sort of say something is a hundred percent. And he sa- basically says a hundred percent of relationships that are struggling are struggling because of betrayal. And so the book itself is a book around all of that math around trust mm-hmm. and you know, how trust is built and how trust is diminished affairs of course are big headline grabbing betrayals. Mm-hmm. Um, so are DUIs and so are gambling addictions. And so mm-hmm. are, you know, not taking the garbage out to the curb when you say you're going to, but yep. um, all of them have the same core DNA, which is this notion that when there's enough trust, things go better. And when there's not, things go worse. And when, we're, when, and by worse, we do, we hunker down, we protect ourselves. We make decisions that are designed to protect us. And they often come at the expense of the other game theory is based on the notion that if one person wins, the other person loses, or that's, Mm -hmm. it's not the whole thing about game theory, but it's this idea that a point for me is a point that you don't get. And the, the art of trust and the science of trust is really about making decisions that, um, benefit the relationship that benefit us both, Mm -hmm. um, kind of the rising tide lifts all boats notion. Mm -hmm. And so his premise is really around learning how to stay in the discomfort long enough to build trust when trust is challenged. So how do couples do that? Yeah, it's really, it's really hard. I mean, I I think I go through different phases uh, about this all the time. I have come to understand and believe that Every single thing you do in a relationship is either trust diminishing or trust building every single thing. It might just be fractional or incremental, Mm -hmm. but it's really about learning how to make decisions so that you can build trust. And, and that covered that, that, um, 
requires some investigation. Like, what is it? Like, what is the thing? John's model is actually, um, I think there's sort of a five part model that I've like, and it's five parts that are divided in two for me anyway, because the first three are, are things that I think are just fundamental, fundamentally about regard. Like I regard you. So I'm going to behave in this way. And that's honesty, mm-hmm. transparency, and accountability. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm just going to, I'm going to live in that way. I'm going to live in that space. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to be transparent, maybe with my phone or my finances or my time. Um, and I'm going to be accountable to you. Like when you say, Hey, we're, where did you go? Or why didn't you take the garbage down? Then I'm going to, I'm going to have a good reason, you know? Um, then the other two, I think are a little bit more complicated in terms of the how to pieces, because I think they are relevant to the kind of the condition. And one of them, the fourth one that he articulates is what's called, um, ethical actions. So let's say there has been an affair. Um, and in terms of building trust after the affair, there has to be honesty, accountability, and uh, honesty, transparency, and accountability. But the ethical action is I'm joining this support group, or I'm going uh-huh. to therapy, or I'm going to, you know, change jobs because I, the affair was with this person I worked with. You know, mm-hmm. I'm going to take ethical steps and show them to you um, that are in line with what is required here. And the fifth one is what's called proof of alliance. And I'm going to make decisions that show to you over and over again that I am allied to you, Hmm. which brings us back full circle to the idea that I'm going to make decisions that benefit the relationship, right? Not just that benefit me. And in an affair situation, of course, there's all kinds of um, situations where I'm making choices that benefit me. And it's because I want to get the thrill or I want to get the sex or I want to get the, you know, whatever. But also I'm benefiting me by not disclosing because Mm -hmm. I don't want to get the, the shame or the punishment or the, you know, whatever. And so it's, it's, it's very complicated or it's not very complicated. It's actually quite simple. Um, Obviously when the consequences get higher, the, the complications are bigger. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I do know. So we, uh, earlier this week, I sent out a bunch of surveys to a lot of the clients at Marriage Helper, just asking, what is your single greatest challenge in your marriage right now? And mm. probably, and it's qualitative, so we haven't coded it yet, but I've I've read through them. And probably 50 to 60% of the responses are something to do with trust. Mm-hmm. It's something to do with either trust has been broken or we're trying to rebuild trust or I, j- I don't trust because of what has happened. Mm-hmm. And so- as I'm reading this book and as I'm listening to you talk, I get it. Like all of this makes total sense to me. And then my brain switches to, so what do you tell the person, not the person who needs to rebuild trust, the person who has lost trust? Yeah. yeah. How do you work with that person to help them trust again? Yeah. This is, the, I, I love this question. I think it's actually a really, really important question for couples to consider when, when an affair comes into my office I almost a hundred percent of the time say, well, I do say a hundred percent of the time, just to give a context, I have never, ever, ever seen a couple recover from a betrayal, a significant betrayal when the harmed partner Mm -hmm. didn't say, I know I have a part of this as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now it's not their fault. Right. It's not their responsibility. They're not, they didn't, they didn't cause it. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you have to participate in the process. And Mm -hmm. so the way I often articulate this to people, as I say, you know, if, if you have a situation where person A says to person B, I don't trust you, mm-hmm. 
and I'll hold my hands up, right? This is person A, this is person B. And the gap between my hands is the size of my head. The size of my head is painful. This is pain. Mm. Now, this isn't as painful as this, as I spread my arms out. And it's not as painful as this, where I close it into my nose, right? Like, But there's a gap. And the gap in trust, because person A doesn't put that's pain. Now, in order to minimize the pain, you have to minimize the gap. And that doesn't happen because one partner goes, or the other partner goes, one partner says, okay, I'm 100% accountable. You have all my stuff. I've surrendered my whole life to you. you I'm never going to make another mistake again. And also doesn't happen because the second person goes, okay, I forgive you. No big deal. Uh, let's just let it water under the bridge. It's going to go away, whatever. That Those two things don't work. They, they're just recipes for new disaster. The only way you can effectively close the gap is when person B, the one who's not trusted, builds their trustworthiness. They demonstrate honesty, transparency, accountability, or they show ethical actions. They show proof of alliance. But person A does have to build their capacity for trust. Mm -hmm. Person A does have to do the work of deciding to risk and to hope and to lean in um, if they want to. They don't actually have to. Yeah. They can walk away if they want to, but if yeah. they want to stay in the relationship, they do have a responsibility. And when I say that word, I often mean ability to respond. They have a response ability mm -hmm. to lean in and say, okay, I'm going to build my capacity. And it could be because they had alcoholic parents. It could be because their college you know, lover cheated on them. It could be because they got scammed by the Nigerian prince. I mean, it could be <laughs> anything that has mm -hmm. diminished their own capacity for trust they have to do that work. And sometimes that's individual therapy. Sometimes it's couples therapy. Sometimes it's yoga. Sometimes it's, you know, joining Al-Anon or whatever, but there is, there are ways that that person can demonstrate the sort of the, I'm also making decisions on behalf of the relationship thing. So that, mm -hmm. I mean, here's the thing. When you look across the relationship and let's say person A, person B, again, my hands, uh, you know, there's a rope. If I'm pulling the rope, either one of you, and it's dead weight, it's really hard. But if we're both pulling the rope, we accelerate that, mm -hmm. that closing the gap quite a bit. And it's part of it is comes because I can look across and know, I know they're doing the work too. Yeah, I know I'm not alone. I know I'm not isolated here. I know I'm not just the only one who has to fix this. Um, that again is a recipe for disaster. Yeah. So let's talk about the more difficult situation where there's the harmed party that is willing to do the work and to forgive mm -hmm. and to trust again. But then there's the party doing the offending behavior that is not willing to mm -hmm. do what it takes to rebuild trust. What do you do there? I mean, what do I do as the therapist or what I do as like, as a therapist, who, 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 who am I? When I what, <laughs> what am I doing? Like, let's identify. So you as a therapist, what would, what would your encouragement or how would you work with a couple in that situation? Well, again, nobody's ever accused me of being inauthentic. And so I'm just, I'm just like facts. I'm like, Hey dude, mm. um, sorry about this, but it's not going to work if you don't, if you don't do the work, like, it's just not, this is the waste of your time and your money. You know, I had a guy in my practice for a year, one year working on recovery from the affair mm -hmm. and they must have, I don't know what they spent, but it was a lot. Mm -hmm. And a year later he got caught again, same, same situation, same girl, never cut it off, was pretending the entire time. And I was just like, um, sorry, sorry about this, but this is, you just wasted a year and let's just say 10 grand. Like you just wasted 
a bunch of time and a bunch of money mm-hmm. because you weren't willing to do the work. For me, it's just, it's like very matter of fact. Mm-hmm. I would rather have said to him and him have to have said a year ago, no, I think I'd rather get divorced and just be with this lady. That would have been better. That would have been a better use of his time and money, his wife's time and money, the whole situation. So part of it, I think, is just kind of holding up a mirror. And that's where the science is really helpful. Like being able to pull on John's work and the Gottman's work and just mm-hmm. say, hey, here's the deal. Relationships don't recover when X, Y, or Z. And let's say in the affair situation, when you try to maintain a relationship with the affair partner. Mm-hmm. Well, it doesn't happen. It's not not possible. So you can kind of want to and wish to, and I hope we can still be friends and, oh, but we still work together. And I'm like, yep, all of that is, all that's really noble. And I'm sure it's coming from a good place perhaps, but it's just not going to work. Yeah. And so what do I do is I just point to the, the precedent. Mm -hmm. Now, how do I get them to like, how do I get them to do the work? That's a little bit of a different story, but I certainly start with no disillusion or no illusions, no illusions. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is where it becomes for me very difficult, especially in the in the work that we do cuz we we do. We work with a lot of affairs and a lot of the um marriages that we see there's a, a, one of the spouses currently involved in an affair and from our yeah. end we know at some point these intense feelings are going to end. Now, how they're going yeah. to end and when they're going to end, we can't necessarily say, but like, so from, from my point of view, it's how can we get the marriage to hang on long enough so that let's say it's the husband having the affair so that by the time the affair ends, the husband hasn't made the worst mistakes of his life that mm-hmm. he was making while he was in the middle of this affair. Like, how can we work towards, and we can't force him to do that, mm-hmm. Um but, you know, for a couple that happens to go through our workshop, a lot of times when they learn about how affairs happen and and uh, limerence and things like that, mm-hmm. they at least, they kind of pause. It kind of brings them back into cognitive dissonance and they're able to say like, hmm, maybe this isn't the decision I want to make for the rest of my life. But it's a difficult place to be as the Yeah, helper. I mean, it's kind of like trying to talk to an alcoholic who right. hasn't hit their bottom, you know? That's it. That's it. When Pete, Right. And you don't know when someone's actually hit their bottom. You could think like that's the bottom, but then they mm-hmm. they just keep going. Mm-hmm. And that's what's hard because I don't know if you're like me in this sense where it's like you see where they're going. You see how this is going to end and it's not going to be pretty. And you know if they would just do something different now, it would be better. I don't know if I am like you in that regard. I mean, I think um, I, I'm kind of amazed at, at – you know how Malcolm Gladwell sort of talks about the 10,000 hours and like Mm -hmm. once you've hit your 10,000 hours, you can sort of call yourself an expert. Mm -hmm. I definitely have my 10,000 hours, but I'm still at awe in awe every single time of how each unique story is its own. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, sometimes I'll call it the sort of profiles of infidelity, right? Because with infidelity in particular, you can have the one night stand with the call girl in Vegas. Mm -hmm. You can also have the secret family in Omaha, Nebraska, Mm -hmm. right? That you sort of, uh, or sort of raising there's, and there's everything in between. And so for me, I want to get into as much as possible, sort of what is actually happening here. And it, and it, that is harder when, when, when either or both partners aren't willing to do the patient introspective work. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't really have any presumptions about where this is actually headed. Um, in part, because as you know, while it is rare, 
there are plenty of relationships out there right now that are happy, healthy relationships that are a result of an affair that, that came together. Um, and those stories have to have room to breathe and exist. I'm not advocating for that by any stretch of the imagination, but it does, it does mean that we have to be very tender with the actual human beings that are actually in the room and not just the sort of the supposition that this is where it's inevitably going. Um, you know, unless it does, of course, hit all of it. There are, <laughs> I don't know if you have this experience, but I'm often very bored by people's affair stories. I'm like, <laughs> Um, of course that happened. Of course you did that. Of course that's the thing, you know, um, it's like those people certainly script. have a little bit, what's that? It's like following a script. Like, yeah, yep, yeah. Like and John, yeah. John in the, in the, what makes love, what makes, what makes love last? I think that's the that's, name I of the book. That's it, yeah. There's a, there's a whole section there what he, that he calls the cheaters cascade. Mm-hmm. And it really is sort of this, like, if there's a map, this is it. And it begins with, the idea that early, early on, before there was ever even the first bit of thinking about it, the relationship suffered a breakdown in just the two partners turning toward one another. Um, and that there wasn't a, there wasn't a consistent and reinforced sense that this is my person. And so, you know, I don't know if I'm making a point exactly, but I think that there's a, there's a, there's a want or a need to kind of make it simple, but it's, of course, it's always complicated. Mm-hmm. Sure. It's two people, two different sets of background. Yeah, it's two people. And, you know, uh, Shirley Glass did really great work in this area where she, I, I don't know if you know her book, but it's called Not Just Friends. She is um, Ira Glass's mom. If you ever listen to This American Life. I don't, but, listen, um, I don't listen to this, but I know Shirley Glass. Yeah. I don't know Ira. But she, 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 she wrote the, really the kind of the, the best book for therapists anyway about infidelity because it's very uh, sort of gracious and open-handed and scientific, but it's very, it's very clear what, um, what her perspective is. And that is it, it, there's, there's stories here and the stories that succeed are the stories where couples do the proactive work of protecting their relationship from external stress mm-hmm. and give each other clear visibility into one another's lives when those things begin to reverse, she calls them walls and windows. Um, when, when now let's say I'm having an affair with you, you and I have a wall around our relationship and our partners have no visibility in our life. So walls and windows have become reversed. That's when that's the beginning of the thing. Um, and so that is the beginning. And then the recovery part though, includes a lot of storytelling and her model actually includes storytelling with, not with, but from the affair partner, because that person has, a stake in the game as well. It's not just like cutting off a limb. There really is another piece of it. And then of course that person has their own relationship and then that relationship is suffered. And we're all just interconnected. I think is her main point is we're all part of the same giant organism. And in order for us to really heal, we have to be thinking about healing as a giant organism, not just as this one little siloed unit, you know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. um, it's wild. It's wild to get into these stories with people and just understand that, that most people are just good people who tried to figure out how to deal with the fact that they were hurting and they chose really poor strategies, you know? Mm-hmm. But how do you, I agree with that. How do you balance though, like seeing these hurting people and they're trying to uh, not hurt And so they're making decisions to try and not hurt that are hurting their wife or hurting their husband or hurting their kids. 
and wanting to be a space like in a therapy office where a person in an affair. So we'll continue using that example where a person in an affair can work through all of the feelings and things they have. Um, but also like helping them realize I'm pausing here because I also understand the things counselors like can't and can't do and can and can't say. Um, so I'm trying I don't to know if I understand way. that. So <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to think of the best way to ask you this question. I, yeah. I'll just tell you where I'm coming from with it. Like there's okay. when a person is in an affair and they have these feelings, like these current feelings of wanting to be with this affair partner, mm-hmm. but there's also their two kids that are mm-hmm. five and 12. There's their wife of 20 years. There's all of the finances they have put together, right? Like we mm-hmm. know the commitment model, all of these things that they have that are that are keeping them together, but they're willing in that moment to sacrifice all of that to go and be with this other person. How do you ha- balance that? Like, do you help them see what they're wanting to leave? Um, that's a good question. Um, and I don't know, I'm thinking if if I just think about like, how do I put this into my own office? So let's say I have a couple come in, he's had an affair. He's still unsure whether or not he wants to mend the relationship. He feels really strongly about this partner that he's with. This is the scenario you're you're teeing up. Yeah. Mm -hmm, Yep. And she's like, I want to make this work. I'll do whatever it takes. And he's like, I'm not really sure. Mm Mm-hmm. I think my next step would be to say to the couple, it seems like we need to clear one hurdle first. And that hurdle is whether or not he can make clear his intention for the, like what he wants. And so it might be good for us to meet one-on-one without her Mm -hmm. for a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, He doesn't, he most likely has spent whatever period of time, um, certainly deceiving her. Mm -hmm. He's probably also deceiving himself. And so part of what has to happen is that he gets his head back above water enough to see what's going on. And that may need to be the couple's therapist. It may need to be me. It may need to be someone outside or independent. Mm. The hard part about that is when you hire an individual therapist, that person is your, is your paisan. They're your advocate. They're your, they're your, they're your, your buddy. Yeah. Um, I believe that I have an individual therapist. I'm seeing her in a half an hour and I can't wait to talk to her about what's going on in my relationship. She's going to have my back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if I said to her, I think I want to leave my marriage, she would say, okay, well, let's talk a little bit about that. She's not going to say, don't do that. Right. Cause that's what that's, I think that's what you're referencing when it comes to what the therapist can or can't say. Yeah. When I get that guy in the room, I always tell him couple, the couple is my client. Mm-hmm. So I'm working for the couple. Mm-hmm. Until one or both of them fire me, mm-hmm. um, and I will. And so my agenda is really clear. I'm not there to be his buddy. I'm not there to be his his. But I am there to hold up a mirror and go. Here's the deal. Here's what's here's what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will be generous and empathetic and kind. Yeah. Um, I will be. Um, I will be fair and even handed. I'll even. I'll even understand a little bit. I mean, part of part of my story about year eight was in fact my own betrayal of my wife with a coworker and. Um, it, thank God it wasn't severe or, you know, relationship ending, but it, I learned a lot. Mm. I learned a ton. Mm-hmm. And so I can say, I, I get it. I understand. I understand how you can sort of wade into a thing. And sometimes you don't know 
that you're in it until you're too far in it. Yeah. Right. And so you, and I get to, I mean, again, I get to, that's not an unknown story in my life or in my writing. So it's, it's not like I'm saying, Hey buddy, me too. It's more like I can, I got three or four different perspectives on this thing. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I'll do exactly what I always do, which is just sort of hold up a mirror and say, here's the math. Mm-hmm. This doesn't work unless you do this. And, you know, the stakes are a lot higher, of course, because you do have your kids, you do have your mortgage, you do have this yeah. sunk cost of 20 years. Um, but then what I will also say is this other thing that I really do believe in, both from my own story and from uh, my work with couples, which is I think couples who can recover from a significant betrayal their relationship is often better after Mm -hmm. that than it was before it started. Mm -hmm. Um, We, most of us stand up in front of a bunch of people when we're young and dumb and we have no idea what we're saying. And we, and we talk about how we're going to do this till death. We're going to do it for better or for worse. We're going to do it in sickness. We're going to do it in health. We're going to do it for richer and for poorer. We have no idea what we're talking about. None. None. And so then we say, I do not knowing what we say I do to, then somehow the betrayal comes and somebody goes, I don't know if I do. I'm not sure if I do actually. Um, but then when that person and the other, and the partner go back and they go, no, what, you know, I really do. Mm-hmm. I really do. Then that thing is really powerful. Yeah. That is way sure. stronger than the thing that existed before. So I'm never like rooting for an affair. I'm not, but like, I don't want yeah, that to happen, but not. when it does happen, yeah. I don't catastrophize. You know, I don't, I'm not going to go to catastrophe because I know I believe in resurrection. I believe in redemption. I believe in like springtime. I believe that, you know, life is life after death is better, fuller, richer, you know? And I believe that because of what I've witnessed and also because of what I've experienced. And so Mm -hmm. that is, but that work has to be done in a kind of a gentle, sober, consistent place. And that's Mm -hmm. often harder to do when you have both of them in the room. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. This is change of subject a little bit, but let's talk a minute about negative sentiment override. So this is another thing I'm really fascinated about right now. Yeah. How I'm at the part of the book where it feels very hopeless, the way they talk Mm -hmm. about it. They're, Mm -hmm. They're just saying, you know, once couples are in this nasty, nasty way of communication, they're in this negative sentiment override, like all you want to do is kind of get them to neutral. And the question I just keep asking, and I'm not to the part of the book yet, is once they're in that, like all the stories mm-hmm. they're telling themselves about their husband or about their wife is just negative. How does a person, like if that was me, and I was, th- I just kept thinking about Rob and just this negative sentiment, how do mm-hmm. I move myself from negative to neutral to positive? Yeah, I actually think this is really fun work. Um um, because if you, I had this woman in my practice, she, she, I think she had an illness. I don't know how to diagnose it or whatever, but it was, it was like the more I spent time with her, the more I, I believed her, but that she mm-hmm. could, she could not see the positive. So she went to mm-hmm. Greece, which is one of the most beautiful countries on the planet. Mm-hmm. And she was there and I, she came back and I said, how, how was it? She goes, weeds, weeds Wait. everywhere. Weeds. everywhere. There's just weeds. And I was like, what are you talking about? She goes, I mean, it was nice, but everywhere I looked there was, and I was like, you poor woman, like, Mm. no, you need to go look at the art and the geography and the Mm -hmm. ocean and the culture and the taste of food. That can be really fun. If you, if you decide to prioritize it, 
Now, wow. in her case, of course, I think she had some kind of condition. Again, I don't know what it is, but I believed her uniquely, unlike other clients. But when you can call out, call somebody to say, hey, what if, what if you did look for the positive things? What if you decided to be a person who said thank you? What if you decided to be a person who, you know, looked at your partner and found beauty or glory? Or what if you decided to be proud of uh, them for whatever? Because there's always, you know, oh, you work too much. Well, I'm really proud of you how hard you work. That's the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. It's just the opposite side. You can flip it over, especially mm-hmm. if it just pops in your head, you know? Um, and so that is... That, I think that can be really fun work. And I think it, you know, part of John's research also exposes the idea uh, around contempt, that when contempt is present, it's one of the sort of famously one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, but it's bad for your body. People yeah. who indulge contempt are more susceptible to infectious diseases. And in fact, their partners are as well. Mm-hmm. So when you notice that that is present for you, and contempt, by the way, is I'm better than you. Mm-hmm. That's why I look at my partner and can go, uh, I don't like this, this, or this. Well, it's because I don't, it's because I think my shit doesn't stink, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it, when that's present, it's bad for your body. It's bad for your partner's body. It's actually healthy for you to go, oh no, they're actually pretty cool. Um, mm-hmm. it's healthy for them. It's healthy for you. Oh no, she's actually really beautiful. Oh gosh, I'm really proud of how hard he works or what a great daddy is. Or I'm really interested in her, like this book club that she goes to with her girlfriends. And wh- I want to read that book too. Like there's all kinds of ways that you can flip it over. And so sometimes I will sell just the health benefit hmm. in terms of moving yourself from negative to positive. The other part of it is, um, I don't know if you caught this or if it's even in that book, but there's a, there's a piece of the research around, they had, um, they had pre-screened couples who were in either positive or negative sentiment override. What that generally means is that there's more positive energy in the relationship than less. And John found a way to measure that. They pre-screened these couples. Then they watched them do their evening. They watched them do like, just how do they kind of do dinner and bedtime and all this stuff. They had neutral observers count all the positive interactions So just hash mark, hash mark, hash mark, please. Thank you. You know, slap on the butt, wink, smile, uh, whatever it was joke that laughed at. One thing that was not a surprise in the research was that the couples in PSO had more positive interactions than the couples in NSO. That wasn't a surprise. That's like, duh, of course, Mm -hmm. when they had couples watch their own videos back, Mm -hmm. the couples that were in PSO, they matched the neutral observer one-to-one. So they saw exactly what the neutral observer saw. Couples in NSO missed about a third of what the neutral observer saw. So being in Mm. NSO, negative sentiment override, actually distorts your vision. It means you can't see reality. Um, So part of of the health benefit is learning how to go, hey, you want better vision? Well, Mm. you better go out of your way to look for things that are actually breathing and alive and healthy and whole in your world and your relationship than just the weeds. Fascinating. You know, I, th- I think it's, I think it's astounding. So sometimes when I find myself just in the doldrums or I'm in the, like, I'm feeling like Debbie Downer just for myself, forget my marriage, just if, if I'm in my life, I, I remind myself, I'm not actually looking at reality. Hmm. I'm missing something. Hmm. And so I do, I lean into gratitude or I lean into, you know, kind of changing my, eye, my glasses and trying to put on the ones that have clearer lenses or whatever, because there is something about you know, the idea of PSO and NSO, 
I think to, to, to talk about repair, there are three opportunities for repair. One of course is after the incident. Mm -hmm. One is during the incident, but the most powerful opportunity for repair is before the incident ever occurs. Um, it's, it's doing that, that work of being in, getting into positive sentiment override so that you don't live in a false world, mm -hmm. indulging stories about yourself or your partner that aren't helpful mm -hmm. and ultimately not turning into the relationship or turning toward, which is the beginning of the cheaters cascade. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of the work of staying out of trouble is before trouble ever happens. Mm -hmm. How would you encourage people to do this kind of work on their marriage before there's an issue in the marriage to be more proactive in it. Well, I think it's, I think it's back to, again, I don't mean to like sort of feel like I'm just promoting John all the time with, but he's brilliant, but you know, mm -hmm. most of m one of the things that we found is that couples generally wait about six years mm -hmm. uh, to come into therapy, be, like trouble emerges yeah. and then they wait about six years and then they come to therapy. That's too long. Way it too means they're long. unhappy for too long. So yeah. part of it is understanding that, that, you don't have to wait till there's a crisis to yeah. do the work, do the work now. And mm -hmm. part of that is just getting almost like getting excited about it. I think for me, most people, and in fact, all of us have really key before and after moments in our lives. Mm. I can point to year eight. There's a year eight, which is before year eight. My relationship was like this after year eight. My relationship was like that. Mm. I have dozens of those. I think therapy should be one of those. I think maybe listening to this podcast could be one of those where they go, Hey, before I listen to this podcast, I didn't do the daily work. Mm. After I listened to the podcast, I really started to lean into, and if we go just strictly to kind of the basis of John's theory, it's that curiosity, affection, and attention mm. need to be nurtured on the daily, um, with, with in like intention, mm -hmm. you know? So I need to continue to learn about you, get curious about you, ask you questions. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I'm like, Oh, we don't talk. We don't ask each other any questions or I already know all her stories. I've heard yeah. them all before. No, you haven't. She hasn't even heard all of her stories before. Mm. You know, I could ask you, I could tell you, I could do it in five seconds. I could get you to tell me a story you haven't told in 10 decades or two decades. I could be like, what's your best story about cotton candy? Hmm. And yeah. you have to dig into your brain and tell me right. a story that you haven't told anyone in 15 years. Yeah. And I could be like cigar, bench, giraffe. <laughs> All of a sudden I'm, I'm learning about you and I haven't yeah. even done anything. I didn't, I didn't work. I didn't work at all. Yeah. I'm just playing in the kitchen. Put a bowl of nouns on your kitchen table and just <laughs> pull them that. out and tell stories. You know, that's curiosity. Yeah. And then there's affection, which is really, it does change. Right. Um, you know, I happen to be a guy who really likes to be thanked. That is a good way to show me affection. It does not matter to me if you compliment my appearance, but you know, learning about that and that might change in a while, maybe in a while, I want you to compliment my parents or tell me that you're proud of me or whatever. Mm. When I'm having sex, I like to have, maybe I, maybe I used to like this or that thing. And now I don't like this or that thing. So I'm going to learn about that. Or when I'm sitting on the couch and you, you know, want to touch me, maybe I want you to touch my feet instead of my, my back or neck or whatever, who knows, but affection is about kind of continuing to discover what makes your partner feel good. Mm. And then attention, of course, is this turning thing that we already talked about, which is, you know, when your partner says jump, you say how high, mm -hmm. 
If she says 20 feet, you go, mm, can't jump 20 feet. I can jump. I can jump a foot. That work? You know, I mean, but it's just about turning toward your partner's bids. And, you know, I think if you decided that I was going to make that a priority, now we're driving PSO up. We're driving sentiment yeah. up. Yeah. And then tomorrow when you don't take the garbage down to the curb, I'm not as upset about it because I know that you like me. I know that you're interested in me. I know you're paying attention. Mm-hmm. And I can tell myself a story about how you just kind of forgot. And maybe I'll even roll the garbage down mm-hmm. because it's not worth picking a fight about. Right. And it doesn't say anything at all about your love for me. So to kind of bring it full circle, then the curiosity, affection, and attention, mm-hmm. are those also components of trust? I think so. I mean, again, I, I trust you more if I know that you're interested in me. Mm-hmm. I know that you like me. Mm-hmm. And I know that you got my back. Yeah. I know that you're paying attention. I'm going to trust you more. For sure. You know, and the, those three things, those are in John's model. That's what he would call love maps, mm-hmm. nurturing fondness and admiration and bids and turning. That's, that's what that is. There's another piece though, that I think does have to be part of it for a couple in a long-term intimate relationship. And that's choice, mm-hmm. right? I choose you. I choose you and you, and because I choose you, um, then I'm going to, do the work of like making choices that benefit us. Mm. Um, that's the extra piece that I think often doesn't get very clearly articulated, but when we're talking about, you know, building trust, particularly within the context of a marriage relationship, um, there does have to be like, you're the, you're the one, right. Mm. You're, you're the person that, that I'm going to risk and sacrifice and compromise for because that's the deal. That's the deal that we made. Yeah. Yeah. So, Makes sense. <laughs> I guess. I mean, it's just math, right? Yeah. It's just math. Just and then, and then there are, of course, all the stories. And I, I do love the stories, and I love um, helping sort of sort through that and finding discoveries. And I love it when couples have their own aha moments about their own story um, mm-hmm. because it creates buy-in for them, and that's that's ultimately what you want. Yeah, so powerful that they're bought into them. Hmm. That could be a whole other conversation too. I mean, sure. Yeah. Goodness, which. Well, which is why I'm really grateful. I get to have them five or six times a day. Mm. You know? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. What is for a final question, final piece to give to the listeners. So what would be your encouragement for someone who is looking to have a healthier relationship? a happier relationship, more satisfying relationship. Uh, At the moment I'm on a big sort of personal health kick. Hmm. Like um, I I just don't think you can do it. I don't think you can have a happy or a healthy relationship unless you are happy or healthy. Yeah. And so if you're not, then I think you got to figure out how to do that work. You got to figure out how to get yourself into therapy or get yourself into sobriety or get yourself into exercise or get yourself into, you know, mending your kind of, um, father wound or whatever it is, because if that stuff is in the way of your own sense of health and well-being, it's necessarily going to make your relationship harder. Mm -hmm. Um, so I got tons of marriage advice about what to do if you want to work on your marriage and all of them are relevant and good. Um, and, 
but not new under the sun. I do think though, that if you're going to do one thing, it's put your oxygen mask on, Mm -hmm. um, and make sure that you can breathe clean, fresh air in order to be of help to anyone else in your, in your life. Um, that I just, I, I'm on, I'm on a very specific firm (laughs) belief, you know, track right now that personal, individual, mental, spiritual, physical health is required to participate in a healthy relationship. Mm. I love it and agree a hundred percent. Well, I'm glad. Thank you so much. Well, so it's what this podcast is all about, being the best you can physically, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually. Uh, What got you on the kick though? I have to know. Uh... Well, a little bit of what I said, like the last few years have been kind of tough for us. And that's been our marriage. It's been parenting. Um, I did get sober about a year and a half ago, which for me was a great decision. Um, And because of that reality, I have found myself able to grapple with challenging things a lot Mm. uh, better than I ever was able to before. Um, Mm. So I have this like, little piece of like kind of just experiential evidence. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's coming from a place of like being really grateful that I have my wits about me as we tackle some really challenging parts of our current phase of life, a little bit of empty nesting, a little bit of just challenging kids, a little bit of our own, you know, sort of dashed expectations around one another. And, you know, I just, again, I'm just really grateful to have been able to do the work of my own therapy. Again, I get to see her in about 10 minutes, which I'm so excited for. And, um, and, uh, my sobriety and just my energy and my wife's energy around showing up, um, with, with, uh, equity to draw from. Mm. Powerful. Thank you for sharing. And thank you for, Everything. I loved this yeah, conversation. Course. It was, loved it. Enlightening, insightful. I was able to ask a lot of questions I'm currently grappling with. So thank you so much yeah, for that. Yeah, good. I'm happy to be of help. Zach, where can listeners find you, find out more about you? You have a couple of yeah, posts, um, all the well, things. Well, I'm at com. That's easy. That's where my private practice is. Um, I also have a podcast uh, weekly with my partner, Laura Heck. I think you got to talk to her. We got to talk to you. That was really fun. Yeah. That's called Marriage Therapy Radio, which you can find at marriagetherapyradio.com or anywhere that podcasts are sold. I'm continuing to try and crack the Instagram code. That's at, at Marriage Therapy Radio. So give us a follow over there. But uh, I'm around. It's Just use the Google. It's easy. Love it. Yeah. Awesome. And I love the Marriage Therapy Radio podcast for Thanks. any listeners that want to check it out. It's a it's a good one. I appreciate yeah. y'all's perspective on many things. Thanks. We have fun. We we actually recorded this morning and um yeah, mm. she's a trip. We enjoy we enjoy that opportunity. So Yeah, I love it. Thank you so much, Zach. Yeah, you got it. Here are my three key pies takeaways from today's episode with Zach Brittle. And in case you don't know what pies means, and maybe you're a new listener, it stands for the areas of attraction, physical, intellectual, emotional, and spiritual. So from what he said, what we talked about on this episode, what can we take and apply to our daily lives to begin to see change? The first is when we talked about trust, and he mentioned that trust takes the person who did the offending action 
being willing to repent to turn around and to do the things that rebuild trust through taking those ethical actions, as he said, through doing the things that will rebuild trust proactively. But it also takes the person who was hurt by what happened, the person whose trust was broken, to really be proactive in being willing to have the trust rebuilt. It's an opportunity to ask yourself, am I open and willing for trust to be rebuilt? And am I doing my part? My second key takeaway was when we talked about the three things that are really key in having a great relationship, showing affection, showing appreciation, and giving attention. How are you doing all of those things right now in your relationship? Which areas are you doing really well in, in showing your spouse or your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your loved one, where, where are you doing well in showing appreciation, affection, and attention? And the other question of that is where can you really hone in on and show even more appreciation, affection, or attention? And then third and finally, in thinking about this positive sentiment override, in rewiring our brains to think more positively than negatively, the main takeaway I took from that is whenever I have one of those negative thoughts come into my brain, how can I flip it to be something positive? Knowing that that is going to make a difference, not just in my marriage, not just in my relationships, but even in me as a person. And then the bonus for all of us is to remember the last thing he said, working on yourself, working on your physical, intellectual, emotional, and spiritual health will not only be the best thing you can do for you, it's the best foundation you can give yourself to have healthy, strong relationships. I love it. It's what this podcast is all about. Share this episode with a friend. I know you know someone who will benefit from hearing what we talked about today. I know I already have a couple of friends that I want to share it with as well. And if you loved it, please consider leaving a review. Reviews help the podcast to gain more traction and to get in front of more people's eyes so that they can hear this awesome content from the awesome guests that I am honored to speak with on every single episode that I have. See you next week. Until then, stay strong.